Well, good morning. Welcome to Reliance Church. I'm Pastor Ted. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to be in 1 John today. If you'll open your Bibles, 1 John chapter 5, as we continue in our study through the epistle of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. In uh, 2001, I took my family to uh, Toronto, Canada, and uh, while we were there, we went to the CN Tower. The CN Tower is the tallest freestanding structure in the Western Hemisphere. It's uh, over 1,800 feet tall. That makes it taller even than the Sears Tower in Chicago. And um, on the observation deck, as you, as you go up this, this tower, not quite at the top, but 1,100 feet up, there's an observation deck. And the observation deck has in it a glass floor. And, and as you stand on this glass floor, it's 1,100 feet straight down to the pavement below you. And it's, it's freaky, man, when you stand on this thing. It is, and I'd been warned when we went. The, the driver says, you know, he tells me about this, and he says, it's freaky, and you can't just walk out there. It's kind of, and I, I underestimated it. I kind of like, you know the, the Ameritrade baby, he hires the, the, the clown, and he said, I really underestimated the freakiness. Uh, I really underestimated the freakiness of this plexiglass floor. And I'm thinking, oh, come on. And, and you know, the engineers say that 19 hippos could stand on, the, I don't know how they figured that out, but 19 hippos could stand. It's kind of a weird picture where they get, you know, hippos up there, and let's see how many hippos we can get on the floor. But anyway, 19 hippos can stand on this, and it won't collapse. So I'm thinking, come on. So I'm walking, there's, a, there's the thing, and I'm like, and I just put on the brakes, man, just, it, you can't help it. You just, in, just instinctively, you have to stop. And everybody, it's a crack up. You watch everybody who walks up to it, they all have the same reaction. And so, and, and it's funny, you're there, and you, you know, you're doing this, you know, and, and it's, and you can't even, you, you, all your weight's on your back foot, and as you kind of gingerly you know, go out and test this thing. And it took me several minutes to, to work up the courage to get out there. I'm like, come on, you girl, go on out there, man. <laughs> and so, so there I am. And I'm, I'm, so finally, you, oh, you get it, you know, and you start tiptoeing out. Well, I'm, you know, feeling like a big coward and I'm slightly comforted because there's these three huge Marines that are there. I mean, these are like three of, you know, you guys who know Ron, you know, Ron, Ron Brownlow is just a huge Marine we have in the church. And there's like three of him that are out there and they, that's, they're doing the same thing, man. They're, they're tiptoeing out. Well, there's this little kid out there and he's like, <laughs> just, and these Marines are like, hey, 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 man, knock that off. That's not funny, man. And I'm saying, I'm just like, this is, this is really freaky, you know? Now, our driver, like I said, he had warned us about this, and he told us that he actually had a friend that they brought out there, and for his bachelor party, they brought him up to this place, and they didn't tell him about the floor. They blindfolded him, and they set him up on the edge of this thing, and so they took the blindfold off and pushed him out onto the floor, man. Now... <laughs> With this visual in mind, I use it. It's a perfect metaphor of faith. And, and just 
as, as we, we're beginning 1 John chapter 5, we're, we're, ge- we're broaching this issue of faith and what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ and, and what your faith looks like and what it acts like. And, and just as standing on that glass floor literally required me to put feet on my faith, in the same way, uh, God requires us to put feet on our faith. So as, with that in mind, we're in 1 John chapter 5, and John says this, verse 1, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone, uh, sorry, uh, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, if you're a note-taker, that word believes there, it appears in verse 1 and also in verse 5. You might want to circle that. It's the Greek word pisteo. And here's what it means. It means to commit yourself. Uh, It means to cling to. It means to rely upon. It means to adhere to. This is the same word, this word believes. John uses it in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever should believe upon him would not perish but have everlasting life. Believe upon him, pisteo, cling to, adhere to, uh, rely upon. This is, this is not an intellectual belief. Uh, this, is, this is not that intellectual belief that I had going up the elevator at the CN Tower saying, yes, okay, there's a glass floor and 19 hippos could stand on it. No big deal. That was an intellectual belief. That was somewhere in the recesses or the corners of my mind that I intellectually believed, yeah, there's a clear floor and it's engineered for me to, to, to stand on it and it's no big deal. That's an intellectual belief. No, this is not what he's talking about. It's a belief that I will trust completely in, that I will rely upon, that I will commit myself to trusting in and walking out upon this thing that requires me to place my faith in it. This is the belief that John's talking about. Now, last week, John made the case that true belief translates into boldness and into a lack of fear. If you were here last week, you heard that in verse 16. We read that we have known and believed that Believe the love that God has for us. That word believed. Again, the the word pisteo, that trusting in. And uh, John says that the result, verse 17, is that we have boldness in the day of judgment because we've placed our trust and our hope and our faith in Jesus Christ. We can have boldness in the day of judgment. And verse 18, he also says the result is that we can have no fear. He says perfect love casts out fear. It all hinges upon that pisteo, that belief, that trusting in, that relying upon. And the big idea is that trust, true belief, is that which translates into action. It's not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. It's not just a a proclamation. It's something that has feet on it. Something that is, is lived out in action. That kid out in the middle of that floor was living out in action his belief that the floor could be trusted. 
Now, not only does belief in action give us great boldness, as we saw last week, and not only does it give us the freedom from fear also that we saw last week, but John says in our text here today three things, that belief in action gives us, number one, power to love our brothers, that belief in action gives us power to keep God's commandments, and thirdly, he says that the belief in action gives us power to overcome the world. We're going to look at these three points today uh, as we just dig into the text a little deeper. Let's look, first of all, belief in action gives us power to love our brothers. Now, I'll have you back up to verse 20. We'll start there. John says this. He says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Now, Interesting verse, interesting statement. You know, hey, your brother's right in front of you. If you can't love him, how can you love God who, who, who's not right in front of you, who you can't see? Now, I want to put up on the screen for you Hebrews 11.1. 1. We're just going to kind of contrast, uh, contrast this. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this. Now, faith, by the word that faith, it's the derivative word of pisteo. Same word as belief that's in our text. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so as we sort of juxtapose these two things, John's saying, look, if you can't, you can't love your brother right in front of you, how do you think you're going to love God who you can't see? And now we see this faith is the evidence of things hoped for and the evidence or the, uh, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, here's the idea. John's saying in verse 20 that if you can't even love your brother right smack in front of you, there's little hope for your faith. That's what he's saying here. He's like, you know, there, yeah, there, there ain't a whole lot of hope for you. So, huge point here. And you, you just can't let this go by. This is something we need to kind of talk about for a second. All throughout this epistle of 1 John, it's written so that we can know that we are saved. It's written so that in going through it, we have these little mile markers through the epistle where, where John gives to us these little tests, these litmus tests, if you will. You can say, hey, here's a litmus test for you. Do you pass this test? Because if you don't pass it, you might want to question whether indeed you're, you're truly a son of God, really, truly if you're a daughter of God. The first litmus test he throws out for us is in 1 John 1.29, basically summed up this way, that a child of God will practice righteousness. That's what he says there. We covered that. And the key word being practice. That doesn't mean you're perfect. It just means that what's your practice. And John throws that litmus test out early in his epistle. He says, look, if you're a child of God, then you're going to have a characteristic of practicing righteousness. In other words, you're going to be trying to walk in a way that pleases God. Uh, and, uh, and then he says, he gives us another litmus test in chapter 3 in verse 9. Basically, he says there that a child of God will not practice Sin, again, the operative word being practice. Not that you won't sin, because you will, but that you won't practice sin. You won't be characterized as an ongoing, habitual lifestyle of, of that person who, who engages habitually in sin. That's, that's what he says there. Now, the next litmus test he gives us earlier in chapter 4, and again, he repeats it here in verse 20, where he says that the child of God is going to love other Christians. That's what is going to be the practice of your life. Good litmus test for you there. And we'll see before we're done in verse 5, he gives us another litmus test where he says that the child of God overcomes the world system of Satan. 
Another litmus test there, are you living an overcoming life? So two litmus tests today in our text to be looking for. The first one is, are you loving others? This is, a, this is a question for you to ask today as we go through the text. The text is my lifestyle, the kind of lifestyle that, that lives out a love for others. The, the second litmus test that you want to be looking for today is, hey, am I living an overcoming life? Am I overcoming the obstacles in the sinful world in which I live in? I, I had the great pleasure, Zach, who, who leads worship for us, my son-in-law, and before he was my son-in-law, before he and Caitlin were even dating, I had the privilege to disciple Zach. And it was a long-distance relationship. He was in Seattle, and I was here. And every uh, Thursday, he'd call me, Thursday afternoon, and, and we'd talk for an hour or so. And uh, he, was, <clears throat> he was really struggling because he, he was, he was uh, at the time, he was a music producer in Seattle. And he's trying to live a godly life and trying to, to walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, but, but really struggling. And he's sort of at a crossroads in life where he's recognizing, man, if I, wanna, if I really want to grow in my relationship with the Lord, something needs to give. So I started asking him some searching questions. One of the questions I asked him was, listen, okay, is staying in Seattle an option for you? And, and to be able to figure that out, you've got to really determine... Are you, as a Christian man, making your mark on Seattle, or is Seattle making its mark on you? Are you making your mark on Seattle, or is Seattle making its mark on you? And and he had to determine, you know what, I need to change. I need to get out of this place. You know, I made the decision to to move here to Southern California, and I'm so glad he did, because now I've got Holland, my grandson, and a great son-in-law. So, you know, God is good. But again, the idea is, are you overcoming the world? then this is a question that we need to be able to to ask ourselves. And so uh, John continues, verse 21. By the way, again, we're we're on this point that belief in action gives us power to love our brothers. And so uh, verse 21, John says this. He says, and this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. Yeah, and we went through this several weeks ago where we saw that, that Jesus was asked in Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew twenty two thirty six, hey, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he answered it forthrightly. He said, look, the, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on these two laws hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, all 66 books of your Bible, the whole thing is summed up in two commandments, love God, love others. First four of the Ten Commandments pertain to your love relationship with God. And the last six pertain to your love relationship with your fellow man. And so Jesus said it, it's about loving God, loving others. This is the commandment that we have. And so John here in, in 21, verse 21 of chapter 4 says, Look, this ain't optional. You're commanded to do this. And then he says in, in chapter 5, verse 1, just a continuation of the same thought. He says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. You're like, what? It's really simple. Who's him who begot? It's Jesus. It's the Lord. It's God. And who is him who is begotten? It's you and me. So basically, he says, look, everyone who uh, loves the the begotter, the begetter, God, uh, loves the begotten, loves his children. That's a no-brainer. If you say you love me and you treat my children badly, then, I'm, then, then we're going to have a problem. We're going to have an issue because 
I, I'm not going to believe that, that you love me. You, you couldn't love me and then mistreat those that are the most precious to me. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever should believe upon him would not perish but have everlasting life. You are so precious to God, he sent his son to die for you. And so if I've got a pulse, if I'm breathing, if I'm actually a child of God, then what I'm going to do in my love relationship to God is that naturally I'm going to love you as well. Now, crazy dynamic, and I know you've all experienced. You ever been to, to a um, family reunion and you watch cousins who've never met? And they are just, they're just thick as thieves, man. They just get in there and they're family. It's this crazy thing. And we experience that as Christians too. We went to Salt Lake City a couple of weeks ago. We're getting, as Zach said, we're getting ready to plant a church in Salt Lake City. And actually some real cool stuff happening there, which we'll be announcing in the, couple, in the next couple of weeks. But as we went there, we went into this town called Bountiful. And it's just, it's sort of like this area here in the sense that Salt Lake City is, you know, a bunch of areas all together. So Temecula, Murrieta, Wildemar, you know, Winchester. And, and it's sort of that way. Bountiful is this one area of the greater Salt Lake City. It's a town of about, you know, 50-ish thousand, 55,000 people. And then, you know, in the extending areas, it's actually as many as 85,000 people. They've only got a couple of Christian churches there. And there's a group of about 25 families that are all members of this one church, but it's about 25 minutes away and they're all hoping and praying for a church to be established locally in Bountiful. I'm like, God, is that you? This is an amazing thing. So we're meeting one of the key families, key couples that it's part of this group. We're just talking to them about, hey, let's just see what God's doing, where God's working. The guy's name is Naveen, and he's married to his wife, Autumn. They invite, we, we don't know them from anyone, and we show up on their door, hey, you know, here, we, someone, this guy sent us to come maybe talk to you, and you know, how do you, they invite us into their home, we end up going to dinner, we come back, they invite us back to their house, hey, come on in, let's, let's play, you know, a game or whatever, and there we are, you know, just spending the evening together, and it was like a family reunion, it was amazing. And just this dynamic that happens when you get Christians together that, you know, if you love God, you're just going to love his people. And you see it, you just see it working itself out. It's an amazing thing. Now, now, now that's not to say that you're not going to have issues with people. That's not to say that you're not going to have to work through some, you know, maybe some disagreements or some hard times. Yeah, of course. I'm not talking about that. But by and large, what happens is when you get Christians together, there's just this family dynamic. It's, you can't deny it. It's a beautiful thing. I experienced the same thing several years ago when the, the tsunami hit Banda Aceh. We went over there as, as part of a relief organization, uh, or a relief operation. And um, so we, we fly in and we land there. This is, this is a, a Muslim stronghold. You couldn't even get into Banda Aceh as a Westerner before the tsunami uh, and, you know, talk about God working all things together for good. Here, this disaster happens, and now Christians are coming into the area. So we go there, and uh, we're trying to catch a U.N. helicopter from this one area of the island over to another area of the island. So I'm there at the airport, and we're waiting. And, um, and interestingly enough, what happens as we're waiting there, it turns out there was a, there was a, a Muslim group there, and, and um, I'm not sure if they're members of, of Al-Qaeda or what, or connected, but they're a Muslim group there that doesn't want us there. We didn't know that they were there at the airport with us. They take a picture of us. Our picture appears on the cover 
of this Muslim magazine with the caption that says, Expel the Infidel. Wouldn't you know, it mine's the only face you could see of all the people in our group. I'm like, great, I'm wanted in, in, in Banda Aceh. But we, get, we catch this UN helicopter, and it's a hot load, and it's a hot unload, which basically means that the rotors go in, and you just, you know, you duck in, and you run in, you jump in. And so they fly you there, they land you. It's like a scene from Vietnam. They land us, and the, you know, we're out in the middle of nowhere. We get out of the helicopter, the helicopter takes away, and there we're left standing there, and we're like, now what? It's four o'clock, the sun's going to be going down. We don't know where we're going to sleep. We don't, we don't have anything. We're just there. And all we know is God sent us. And so we, we just start hitchhiking down the road. We end up at this, it's too generous to call it a restaurant, but we end up at this place that's serving something resembling food. Um, it certainly didn't taste like food, but there we are. And once you know it, there's Christians in that restaurant, and they're like, you don't have a place to stay, stay with us. It was just, you know, I'm, you know, 10,000 miles from home, and Christians, family, it's just a beautiful dynamic that takes place. Hey, everyone who loves God is going to love God's people. And, and it's just this beautiful thing. And, and you know, you guys, maybe you've heard the, say, the, the saying that the best thing a father can do for his children is to love, is to love their mother, right? And, and so with this idea, the best thing that I can do for you is to love Jesus. And the best thing that you can do for me is to love Jesus. Because if we love Jesus, then we're going to naturally have a love for one another. This is a litmus test for us. Hey, where am I at? Well, not only does this belief in action give us power to love our brothers, a very strong litmus test there, but John also says that belief in action gives us power to keep God's commandments. Belief in action gives us power to keep God's commandments. Look again at verse 2. John says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. And he says in verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. He said again in uh, verse 23 of the same chapter, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So this idea that our belief will give us power to keep the commandments, you know, there are some people that they, their relationship with God is sort of this mushy emotional experience. To, to which I say, you know, that's fine and that's cool, except for the fact that at some point, your love has to, has to transition from this, you know, gooey emotional thing to a, where the rubber meets the road kind of thing. And, and the problem with those that relate to Jesus on this gooey emotional thing is that, and you've experienced it, your love relationship with God uh, requires you to do things that you don't feel like doing. Your love relationship with God requires you to sacrifice in a way that is oftentimes unnatural and, and very much the opposite of what your feelings want to do. I, mean, I'm, I went to Starbucks this morning to get a cup of coffee, go over my notes before church, and there's always a group of, of bicycle riders that are there getting ready. 
And inevitably, every time I go, they're going. And they think they own the road. And so I'm sitting there waiting for them all. And they're just driving right down the middle of the road. And I suppose legally they have the right, but it makes me mad that they just sort of flaunt it. And they're driving there. And I, where was I going with that? Just that people bug you, man. They bug you. And your emotions want to have you do one thing. My emotions wanted to just drive this fantasy of just driving them all down. Get out of my way. But that's not love, you know? And so if I'm just sort of letting my emotions dictate what I do, that's a horrible way. And some of you guys know people like this. They just, they live their life by emotions and it's just constantly, they're all over the map. Our relationship with God is one that, hey, it's got to transcend this, this gooey emotional whatever and it's got to get to the place where we actually put feet on it. With that in mind, turn to uh, James chapter 2. Just to the left, uh, a couple of books and a, literally a few pages in your Bibles. James chapter 2. James says this, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 2. He says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Chapter 2, verse 15, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith and, and I have works. Uh, Uh, I'm sorry, show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works... Faith was made perfect, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God. That word believe, what do you suppose it is? Pisteos, it means to cling to, to rely upon, to adhere to. And Abraham clung to God, relied upon God, adhered to God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You all know that what God called Abraham to do was something that, man, you want to talk about something that goes against every feeling and emotion you can ever have. Isaac is son of promise. He's waited forever for this son. And God says, go sacrifice him. What? And he believed God. He trusted God. He said, this thing that you're calling me to do, it doesn't make sense. But I'm going to trust in you. And let's be honest. How many times really in your life, in my life, God speaks to us and the things that he says to us are things that don't make sense? You know, really? There's so many times, and I've got it figured out. God, here's my situation, and uh, here's the answer that I can see, so do that. You know, and God's like, no, not going to work that way. And you're like, come on, God, I had it all. It was so perfect. That's all that. You couldn't do that? No, because that's not the way he's going to work. He wants to work this way. I... You know, experience in my own life when, when God called me to plant this church. And it just flat didn't make sense for me. I'll tell you who I identified with at the time. 
identify with, with Philip. If you read in, in uh, Acts, the book of Acts, you see what happens is that, you know, God pours his spirit out upon the disciples. There's this great moving work of the spirit. He plant, the church develops there in Jerusalem. It's going brilliantly. And God told the disciples, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But things are going so great in Jerusalem, they're, they're not moving out. Just Jerusalem church is exploding. He's adding to the church daily such as should be saved. He's adding so many people. They have to get these, these deacons. They appoint these seven men full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit to help them. The, the, the apostles say, we need to focus on the teaching of the word. We need guys that are willing to work to come alongside us and take care of some of these tasks so that we can give our priority to the teaching of the word because that's what God's called us to do. So God raises these men up and, and we promptly see, the Bible says, as you're faithful in little, God will make you faithful in much. And so we we promptly see that these seven men who were appointed to literally wait tables, all of a sudden now they immediately begin to do so much weightier things. Stephen, one of the seven, right out the gate, he's preaching probably one of the most powerful messages of the New Testament, and they promptly kill him for it because it was so convicting. He's the first martyr of the church. And this was this triggering event that caused a great persecution. Now the floodgates to open up to come against the church there in Jerusalem. And this is just, you know, Romans 8, 28, God working all things together for good. He had told them, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. But things were going so good in Jerusalem, they didn't go. So he allows this persecution to come. Everybody's scattered. And it says that one of the guys, the Philip, who was one of these seven, he goes to Samaria. And he promptly starts a church in Samaria, and it's brilliantly successful. So he's got Calvary Chapel Samaria going off the hook, you know, and he's the senior pastor. Things are, life is good. All sorts of people come into the church. It's going great. And all of a sudden, in the height of it, God shows up to Philip, and he says, Hey, uh, Philip, I want you to go down the desert road that leads to Gaza from Jerusalem. Philip's like... Are you kidding me? I just got my website up and running. We got these cool bulletins. You know, I got a mailer hitting next week. And life is good here in Samaria. And what? Yeah, I want you to go and do this. And Philip went. That's the amazing thing. Totally didn't make sense to him. But he went because God told him to go. And he's going in the desert. Here he's got this, these thousands of people. And now he's just going down the desert road to meet with one person, an Ethiopian eunuch, the Bible talks about. Now, long story short, too, <laughs> too late, but a long story short, he leads this man to Christ, and the man returns to Africa with the gospel. I mean, just this great stuff in the economy of God. God's working and moving, and, and you know, you got to wonder, why Philip? Really, why Philip? Right man, right spot? Yeah. I wonder, though, if, you know, maybe there were some other people that God would have wanted to, to tag that wouldn't have been willing to do it. Something to think about. And so there's this idea that when we have this faith, this belief in our hearts, this pistol, this, this belief in action, then it gives us power to obey God's commandments, whatever the commandments may be. Where God just says, hey, go, do this work. Now, notice back in verse 3, of 1 John chapter 5, that John says this. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And notice what he adds. He says, and his commandments are not burdensome. You see that word burdensome? Interesting word. It means literally weight. 
And the idea here is that God is not going to give you that which is too much for you to carry. That's the whole idea there. In other words, God's not going to command us to do something or to, to carry something that, that, is, that is too heavy of a load for us to bear. Corey Ten Boom uh, was traveling with her father. She was very young, and uh, they were on a train, and she said to her father, just, you know, she's a young girl, you know, eight years old maybe, and she had heard about sex sin, and she said to her dad, what, Daddy, what is sex sin? And her dad said to her, Corey, I'll answer that question if you'll carry my bag off the train. And so they, she went to pick the bag up, and, and of course she couldn't move the bag, let alone carry it. And she exasperatedly said to her father, she goes, I can't carry your bag. And her dad said, yes, honey, and I'm afraid that you can't carry the answer to the question that you just asked me either. So I'm not going to answer that question. You're, you, you're not big enough to carry it. And for us, there is this idea that, you know, the the Bible promises God's not going to give us more than we can handle. But I I don't know if you're like me, or you will give yourself more than you can handle all day long, you know? And my wife will have conversations with with gals in in counseling or whatever, and, and, uh, you know, frequent experience is that she'll she'll come across a, a, a gal that's struggling with a burden that she's got no business carrying. That, you know, she's carrying a burden that rightly belongs to her husband. And he ought to be carrying that burden. And I know that I'm speaking to some of you here. Maybe some of you ladies carrying a burden. God hasn't designed, has no intention for you to carry that burden. And I know he's speaking to some of you men saying, man up. Because you're allowing your wife to carry a burden that you should be carrying. And so the idea here is that, hey, you know, his commandments aren't burdensome. He's, he's not going to ask you to do something that, that, you, that you can't do. And another idea about this, well, Matthew says, uh, Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, when Jesus says my yoke is easy, literally what that means is that it's fit for you. And the whole idea here is that, you know, when you would have an ox to plow a field, the device that connected the ox to the plow is a yoke. And that yoke is custom made for that ox. And if you were to take a yoke from another animal and put it on that ox, take the burden that was intended for another animal that, that just had you know, a different physical makeup, a different physical shape, well, then what would happen is this animal that's wearing this unfamiliar yoke would be bearing a burden that wasn't designed for it. And so Jesus is saying is, look, my yoke is easy and my burden is life. I have a, a specific work designed just for you. Now, think about this for a minute. Because, you know, a lot of times we hear something like that and we're like, oh, yes, I, I've, I've, I've been serving the Lord and it is weary. And so 
I need to just quit, and I need to, to put that away. Not so fast. Because Jesus says, my yoke is easy. Now, the yoke is that device which pulls a plow. And we're not talking about sitting on the couch, eating bonbons. We're talking about plowing. We're talking about work. And, and you know, anything worthwhile requires work, does it not? Ask any mom. She'll tell you. Anything worthwhile requires some work. And so it's the same in our faith, that we have this balance. On the one hand, we're not supposed to take on burdens that aren't intended for us. On the other hand, we're, we're not to make the mistake that when God allows us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling in service of Jesus Christ, and it becomes burdensome, that we're not to run from it either. There's wisdom involved. Serving Jesus does require work. Not working for your salvation, but working out your salvation. We have guys that show up here at 6.30 in the morning for prayer and then set up and go through two services and tear down because God's called them to do that. And they will tell you it's work. But when God calls them to do that, then that's what they do. Moms, with your children, work. It's work. Guys, you work all day and you come home and your son says, go throw the ball with me and all you want to do is take a nap. That's work and you have to work through that. And so there's wisdom that's indicated there. But the point is, is that God's commandments, they're not burdensome. They're, they're, he gives you his commandments and the commandments that he gives to you are yours to keep. And there's a, there's a balance that's there. Now, another reason that God's commandments aren't burdensome is flat out because they're wise. They're wise. We don't always appreciate it, but his commandments are wise. Uh, years ago, when I was in the fire department, we used to uh, train in repelling. We worked in my first in area, had a lot of high-rise buildings. And so, you know, if we would all in our rest, in our personal gear carry repelling equipment so that if we were in a high-rise fire and things went south and we had no way of escape, that we could find an anchor point and repel out of the building. And so to be proficient at that, we would train in repelling. And so what we would do is we would take the, the aerial truck and put it in the back of the station and raise it up 100 feet. And we would be up there in the basket and we would, you know, anchor to, to the basket there. And you, you've got your harness. And then on the front of your harness is this thing. It's called an eight plate. And the rope goes through this eight plate and it wraps around. And then you hold this rope behind you. And then the friction of the rope traveling through that eight plate is what slows you down. So you squeeze the rope with your hand and you pull the rope behind your back. And this is what slows you down, or even you can stop yourself that way. And so this is the way that it would go, and this was the policy, and we would go up there, and we would train. It was really kicking the pants. It's really fun, you know? Well, one of the things that that eight plate would hook into a carabiner, and uh, one of the guys was, you know, did some research and found out that, well, that, you know, if you didn't have an eight plate, you could actually use the carabiner as a modified eight plate where you just take the, the rope and you'd wrap it through the carabiner several times and then you could use it that way. Not advisable, not recommended, and certainly not within the policy of the fire department. Well, one day, he's up in the basket and he, he doesn't have an eight plate. Well, it's too much of a burden to, you know, lower this basket down and go get his proper gear. So he just figures, you know, that's too burdensome. I'm just going to use my carabiner and wrap the carabiner. And so he does, and he jumps out of the basket. 
Well, he's a big boy. He's, you know, 250, easy, maybe sporting 300. I mean, he's a big guy. And so he dropped like a rock, man. He jumped out and it's like, there he goes. And he's squeezing his hand as hard as he can. He's pulling the rope behind his back. And, it, and he's falling at such a rapid rate of descent. The rope burns through his glove, starts burning into his hand. Now, fortunately, at the end of that rope, we had a person on belay. And so the firefighter at the end of the rope, what, what you do is on belay, you apply the proper tension and pull in the, the direction that he was unable to do with his one hand. And so this firefighter saved his life. And because the, this other firefighter was following policy, this man was saved. Now, it's been said there's no pun intended. There's no teacher like the burnt finger, right? And so don't you know that from then on out, he appreciated the wisdom of the policy of the fire department, which is you never repel without an eight plate, right? For him, the, the commandment was burdensome. And then he realized, you know what? It's needful. It's important. And, you know, this is why the Bible is so filled with so many passages exhorting that we should gain wisdom, that we should seek wisdom, that God has a treasure of wisdom for us. Just a few of many for your consideration. Proverbs 5, 1 and 2 says, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge. Uh, Psalm 111, verse 10 in the New Living Translation says, The fear of the Lord is the foundation of true wisdom. All who obey his commandments will grow in wisdom. And one of my favorites, Proverbs 13, uh, 3.13 says, Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. And the Lord says this to us through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 55.9. He says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And the idea here is that as we come to trust God, and as we seek after Him, And as we commit our faith to him, what we will find is that indeed he is wise, he is all-knowing, and that by applying our faith not to what seems right to us, the Bible says the way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So by not doing that, but by rather giving our, having this pisteos, this belief in action, then we can keep his commandments because we don't despise them. We say the Lord's wiser than I am. Biblical example, in case you needed one, in the Garden of Eden. God speaking to Adam and Eve, and he says, look, and I'll paraphrase, hey, everything in the garden, it's all yours. Have at it. Just stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're like, we want the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what we want. Of course they do, because that's, you know, that's what we do. And, and God's like, no, I don't want you to do that. I want you by faith to trust in me. And when I tell you that it, you're surely going to die if you partake of it, you need to understand that I am wise. And so our belief in action gives us power to keep his commandments. Well, the final thing that we see here is that belief in action gives us power to overcome the world. Verse 4, John says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Guys, it all comes down to belief. Pisteos, trusting in. Are you going to trust in what seems right to you? Or are you going to trust in what God says 
is right. It's belief. What do you believe? Where is your faith? What are you placing your faith in? Martin Luther said this. He said, God our Father has made all things depend on faith so that whoever has faith will have everything and whoever does not have faith will have nothing. So the idea here, guys, is that it comes down to faith. Faith. What is your faith placed in? I'll close with this illustration and we'll partake of communion together. Um, several years ago, a family was, uh, woke up to find their house on fire, fully engulfed in flames, and they scrambled to get out and uh, they thought they had all made it out safely but then were horrified to discover that their youngest son hadn't gotten out. And just as the father was trying to make his way back in, they heard this little boy's cries coming from the roof and hear this little guy, I mean, he's like four or five years old, and he had, he had gotten out of his window, thank God, but now he's on the roof there of their house just outside his window, and the dad is standing below, and the dad's shouting out to him, he says, jump! jump and the 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 kid all he could see was, was flames and smoke and blackness and he said he said daddy i can't see you and his father said i can see you and that's all that matters and on faith belief that his dad was going to catch him pasteos trusting in that boy took that jump off of that roof and his father caught him perfect illustration for us because every single day you might not be caught in a burning building but you maybe even today you're you feel like it you're caught in something and you're struggling and the lord is saying to you trust me believe in me i'll catch you